Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hoi, ik ben Blue. Hoi, ik ben Maxi. Ik ben 14 jaar. Ik ben 12 jaar. Ik woon in de Nederlands. Ik kom uit USA. Ik moedertaal is Engels. En dit is in huis. Hoes. My name is Nalika Radway, and this is Raising Rebels, a podcast about oppressed parents raising free children. Today, I am so blessed to be joined by my good friend. Um, I like to think of you as my conductor because you've given me like safe passage um, from the U.S. to the Netherlands, and I am it like. I'm going to cry today. Like, I'm so incredibly grateful <laughs> for it. And, um, yeah, I'm just happy to have you. So welcome, Ira. Um, Thank you. <laughs> can you tell the people a little bit about yourself? My name is Ira Kip. I always start by saying I'm the twin sister of Ira Kip because we are one. And um, I am a mother of two, Effie and Elijah, one and three-year-olds who think that they're teenagers. So that's cool. <laughs> and um, I'm also an, uh, the founder and director currently of Kip Republic, mm -hmm. which is a cultural collective here based in Amsterdam, but um, active worldwide, global, we say. Um, and as a cultural collective, basically what we do, we offer a platform for storytellers mm -hmm. of multidisciplinary um, subjects. So it could be a play, it could be a movie, it could be a book, anything artistic that you would like to use as a tool to tell a story. We either create it with you or help you produce it, or we create ourselves IDs that we have. Mm -hmm. um, We're going to get into all of it. Yeah. Um, so I like to start the podcast with... One word to describe how you're feeling right now. I feel fresh. Mm. You look fresh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am feeling light. Like we're in this room. For those of you who are listening to this podcast, the sun, you could, it's like a panoramic view and you can see like the canals and the river and there's light all around. And I'm feeling it. Like I'm feeling it flowing through us. And so. That feels really good. Tell us about your children. Effie, uh, she was my firstborn. She's three. I um, knew that I wanted to become a mother very early on in my life, maybe like early 20s. But I was never the type of person that had like a biological clock or was conscious of having a clock that was ticking. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to party and bullshit till I was 35. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I think maybe this is the time so that by the time, you know, she's 15, I could still do something okay. with her. Like I still like, 
you know, me and her could still dance or whatever. So by 35, I was like, okay, enough traveling, a lot of working, a lot of partying and bullshitting. And so why not? You know, this is a good time. And then I also, a year prior to her being born, I had asked for love in my life and I met her father. So it was just a perfect time. And um, I didn't know, I chose not to know what I was having. So I, I met her when she was born, I didn't know it was a girl. And uh, throughout my pregnancy, people were hinting to me that, was, that I was having a son, but I knew I wasn't. Mm. Like something told me I wasn't. So, and then I met her and uh, she's amazing. She's a mini me. So oftentimes when she does certain things that I feel like are questionable or that I need to check her on, I also have to check myself because it's like, yeah, I would do that. <laughs> I would do that too. Yeah, if you're a part of me, I would do that too, mm -hmm. you know. And even like she sometimes already talking with her hands and telling me and directing me. And I'm just like, yeah, that's me, you know. Yes. So I really have to try to find a balance between trying to discipline her and trying to guide her and also trying to just express who she is, you know. And then her brother came a year and a half later. And he is, uh, when I thought she was going to be like, you know, the one full of energy and, you know, all out there. I was, th I thought he was going to be the quiet one and he's exactly like her, <laughs> but, but this male energy. Yes. So it's different. So first I was translating it as, Oh, he's really like hyper and, and people would have to check me and say, No, he's a boy. Mm -hmm. It's a different energy, you know? So, um, but he is, um, I think, um, in his development, he's taken his time, um, where Effie was, reading books at two and uh, could recognize letters, he's chilling. He's like, I'm going to meet y'all when I go to school. So right now, all I want to say is bottle and pacifier. So hook me up when I'm ready for it. <laughs> so yeah, they're good. And um, they're happy children. Uh, they're free children. They're beautiful black children. And I am on top of their safety. I'm on top of their freedom and their consciousness uh, and their sense of place and the fact that they can i really want them to just be you know mm -hmm. yes i um, do know yeah yes i do know they are so like our i think like our children are like play cousins kind of like they you know like they've met each other and they are so full of life like they are just like full they're just open like they just come into spaces and like it's contagious yeah and they are so perfectly mapped yeah like they're just like made for each other <laughs> you know like just like oh yeah it's us we we were made to like ride out in this world together which is magical how has parenting changed you mm, i don't feel like it changed me mm, i feel like i've n literally never heard a parent say that no, the, oh it's changed circumstances or a thought process but changed me as a person mm. not so I think the change is, is more in uh, time and energy, mm -hmm. but I really look at myself the same. Mm -hmm. uh, I, just my consciousness is different. Maybe that's changed. Yeah. My consciousness, um, I remember the first day after delivering my daughter, maybe like uh, four days later, I was the first time I went out of the house 
And as soon as I came out of the house and I looked around, I knew I didn't want to live in the neighborhood anymore. Oh, that's a huge change. Yeah. Because of her. Yeah, that's amazing. So I was like, I looked, just looked around me. I was like, no, this, this was great for me, but this is not good for her. It was a great neighborhood. It's just not, uh, what I wanted to raise her mm-hmm. in. Um, and so I think my consciousness, maybe that's changed. But again, I always kind of felt like I was made to be a mom. So I think I just now I'm doing the task that 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 was genuinely going to be yeah, my task, you yeah. know. Um, I think what you're saying, I completely relate to and understand in that parenting hasn't like made me a different person at all. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm Nalika, 16, same person, <laughs> you know, like, like literally like the same things, talk the same way, I'm the yep. same person. My perspective and the urgency has shifted. Like it's actually becoming a parent has made me more of myself. There's like who I was as a young person that kind of mm. has gotten like lost in the noise of like oppression and socialization and work and all these things. And you have kids and you're like, no, 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 no. You got to get back to who you are. Yeah. Cause they see you <laughs> and you're like, you want to be a, a honest reflection of them. And mm-hmm. so I completely understand that idea of like, no, I'm who I am with them. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And I think also that, um, in rediscovering myself, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that is more of the process that I, I think I've experienced that I was just like you. I was just like, you know, the things that I find important, mm-hmm. the things that I value, they become much more important mm-hmm. when you have children. What, what really are your values as a person? You better, you better know that once you have kids, mm-hmm. you know, when, you, when you're still, um, motherless, uh, you don't have children and you're out in the world with the flirtations of the world and the noise of the world, you know, it's, it's easy not to have to check in. But once, once you're a parent, you have to check in, you know, and I see that, for instance, now in having to choose a school, I'm like, actually, I don't want a school that's all right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. are we gonna get? We're gonna get into all that. I mean, this is what the reason I brought you. Like, want I want to talk to you about everything we talk all the time. Um, like literally about all of the things we can feel. We can just sit here and chat about everything. Um, and so, oh my gosh, my my brain just went to all of the things I want to talk to you about. We didn't like since our last conversation that we haven't had a chance to talk about but we're going to get to all of it. But today specifically, I wanted to talk to you about raising black children that are black. And like you said, like in the forefront of their identity, what you're trying to instill in them is there like a sense of security and connection to their heritage and to their identity. And also they're being raised in the Netherlands. They're, they're Dutch. You know what I mean? They're having a Dutch experience, which for the most part is not necessarily inviting of the diversity of race, you know, like mm-hmm. being a black person and like what that looks like and being Dutch sometimes finds itself often in conflict. And I really now myself as a black parent who is raising black children in the Netherlands, I am being confronted with all the complexity of like what that means. Mm-hmm. And in so, um, you know, when I came to Amsterdam particularly, I did not have the expectation of there being a large percentage of like people of color, much less black folks. I mean, I imagined that there were some because I knew that that was part of the culture. I knew you, you know, like I had friends, but I did not expect the sheer numbers and uh, like amount of black, like I am never anywhere 
in the Netherlands. And part of it is play, play where I choose to be, where I'm the only one. It's very rare that I find myself in spaces. And I think part of it is like because of where I choose, like I said, where I choose to be. And also because there are tons of black people in the Netherlands. You yeah. know, the Netherlands, it colonized much of like places. They started um, the slave trade. It is part of what it is to be Dutch. And um, this idea that there are black Dutch people, but if you, in all of the, like if you look at a brochure for the Netherlands or Amsterdam, there might not be any black people in that brochure. You know what I mean? Things like that. But also, I think that you haven't been taught that in the United States. Yeah. Because did you know growing up, Sade was British? Exactly. I mean, I know. I knew because I'm Jamaican. <laughs> but I don't think most people do. Do you know where I'm going to? When Lene was talking about mm-hmm, that, absolutely. where she was discovering British, British, uh, British uh, artists through Soul Train. Yes. And not knowing there was this whole enclave of, mm-hmm. of black folks in, in the UK. Um, so I think also it's, uh, in the U- United States, the, 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 exp- the, 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 the information about black people yes. globally is, uh, you know, not, uh, necessarily. Absolutely. Here, so. Absolutely. And so it made me think about this idea of being invisible. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of like, you're here and you're part of this society and part of what this, uh, we're at the podcast network festival and the theme this year is invisibility. And there's this way in which, and I think exactly what you're saying for black Dutch people, it's not invisible. Like, you know, you where you are, you know that you're part of this culture, but for us outsiders. And I think also maybe for like the white Dutch um, experience, there's almost like an invisibility to seeing any kind of difference, really. And so part of what we do in the podcast are recollections. And the reason why I do recollections is so that we can get in touch with our own childhood selves and that we have a better, like, I don't think you can really understand your children until you start to understand who you were as a child and connect with that. And so I asked you to think back as far as you can to a memory or recollection of a time that you felt invisible or hidden in any way and it could be literal like it could be like hide and go seek you know it could be very literal it could be figurative it could be a perception of not being seen and so you could take a minute and think if anything comes to mind for you well my mother was raised by her aunt and uncle Mm -hmm. uncle was uh the family and the aunt was the the married you know into Mm -hmm. the family but um my mother was raised by uh, Placida and um, Opa Carlos, but um, Placida became like her mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, Oma Placida, she uh, was very uh, Latino, very strict, you know, like uh, when we live, when we were living in Aruba, like all the boys could like run the streets. And as girls, we couldn't really go to like, you know, even the corner store. Um, and, you know, when you speak about invisibility, you know, I've experienced invisibility as a child in my family. And so I feel like my grandmother, actually, because she is my mom's aunt, but she became my mom's mother. So she became my grandmother. And I was raised to see her as my grandmother. I felt like I was oftentimes invisible to her, mm-hmm. that she didn't necessarily could identify me as a brown skin girl and so she didn't understand the complexities or the energy or the chutzpah or the you know the funkiness that that comes with being a brown skin girl Mm -hmm. because my grandmother herself Placida herself was a Ruben but she was Latino and she was very 
or fair skin. Um, so, but I've had some times where I felt like my grandmother didn't really see me for who I was. And, um, yeah, so I would say in my family and then, man, the colonial hangovers in our, in our culture, in our family, in our communities are so deep that we oftentimes try to identify ourselves through colonialism. Mm -hmm. So through what other people see us as mm -hmm. and not as who we are as people. So there's a lot of invisibility that happens by default yeah. in our culture, you know. Uh, in my family, I think oftentimes it was my my grandmother. And I say oftentimes, just my experiences with her when I was living in Aruba, my parents never made me feel like that. Mm -hmm. And even my father, who wasn't, he was around, but, you know, on his own schedule. <laughs> that's so, that's so, you're so gracious. I love that. I got it. I love that. I'm very accommodating and generous to my dad. <laughs> I love that. But it was never invisible, even when he wasn't there. You know, my parents always saw me, you know. So, um, yeah, I would answer it with that. Yeah. I mean, that's a strong answer. Um, something that came to mind for me when I was thinking about it, it was I also never felt invisible in my family or even like in the world. I, I always felt very seen. Sometimes I almost wanted to hide more than like being invisible. And but something that did come up for me is um like my inner self like my like was not seen necessarily like what was going on in my like my efforts and the things I was doing and one story in particular is I was I, like I'm really and it's so funny because my children are so much like this and I'm not I ju I'm just making this connection real time right now <laughs> as I am speaking to you but I as a child was a person that really liked celebrating things so every anybody's birthday, any holiday, I was like making cards. I was like I was like putting in effort. I like I like surprising people. I like that was just like my thing. And my kids are similar in that way. And so I remember um on my mother's birthday often like I would make cards and I would like like do things like I would like want to get the house ready or like um or just and not even just her birthday just in general like she was coming home I would try to like get ready for her like like clean up a little bit like whatever it is partially because if not she was gonna lose her shit but also like there was like part of preparing and she would come home and she wouldn't see what I did mm -hmm. she would see what I didn't do so she would see like like that this dish wasn't moved or like that that this thing wasn't but like I in myself was like I was working really hard to get it ready and feeling like all of that effort was like invisible and unseen and I know that I do that now with my own children which is like so how it's like so embedded in you like you don't even realize like, I didn't have an understanding of why she was doing it. I just know how I experienced it. And now that I'm on the other side of it, you know, you try, like you said, to check yourself, like be a conscious parent. But even the digger, digging deeper into like, but why is that what happens to you? And like realizing like, oh, it's my own need for like security. It's my own need for like placement of things. It's my own need of coming into space and feeling grounded because I know where everything is yeah. versus having anything to do with them, you know, or what they're doing and recognizing that is like, it helps me ease it. And I definitely don't, I know that my mother didn't have the space to like think deeply about like, while I'm coming home from work, what is it? what's happening for me versus like how I'm reacting to my children. And so fast forwarding to now my adult self, I think often about wanting, I mean, part of how we ended up, there's so many little things of how we ended up here, but a lot like here in Amsterdam, but one of the big parts, the biggest part is our children. 
and seeing as how they as they got older, all of the ways that when they were younger were celebrated. They're, you know, things you're talking about your children, like being boisterous and taking up space and being like energetic and free and moving through the world. As they got older as black children, there wasn't as much space for that. There wasn't as much support for that. They were either going to have to become more less visible for safety and survival, (laughs) or we were going to have to we were going to have to leave. <laughs> like both those things, I couldn't, we kept getting to spaces like, how do these things work? How how does it function and work for, our, to, for us to tell our children, be everything you can be, like live like loud and then knowing that those things were going to then oppress them or keep things from them. And, and um, so we ended up here. And now here we are in Amsterdam and we're at a stage like we got here at the height of the coronavirus and everything was shut down and we've got we've had the pleasure I think of like being very insulated as a family like choosing our chosen family and connections but in general like getting to be like a I wouldn't say isolated it's more like held you know like held in spaces that feel supportive of who we are and who our children are and now we're starting to have to like we're starting to step out into larger dutch culture school you know, they're doing different dance classes and art classes and finding interest and things like that. And it doesn't feel so like, you know, we're hitting against what it is of being in a white nation, you know, like a similar to the U.S. around like, how are we negotiating um, their fullness of who they are and race? <laughs> um, what's your favorite Dutch word? Uh, I like veggle. I mean, eagle because it's cute. I mean, not eagle. The word it's for porcupine. And I think it's perfect because when I think of a tiny little porcupine, I don't think of the bold eagle. And that makes me laugh. Uh, I think it's probably we learned so many words today. I think my favorite word right now that's standing out to me is paddenstool, which is a toadstool. Paddenstool. We just learned a lot of things because we have like a study thing to do. So I like paddenstool right now. And so I guess I want to, I mean, so you grew up and in the Southeast. And the Southeast is a predominantly black neighborhood in Amsterdam. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit of like how you're understanding? Because first of all, on top of being so many things, you are a walking historian like of this place. <laughs> like I'll ask you a question and you can give like this is a gift to so many people. So how did Southeast become like a black, predominantly black neighborhood in Amsterdam? Uh, Southeast became predominantly black. Well, I think we need to go a few steps back. Uh, The migration of our people to Amsterdam started with the independence of our own country. So in Suriname, 1975, Suriname got independence, and uh, which was more uh, independence was behind a movement of the black community because the Suriname is a lot of people know is mixed with all these different cultures and but uh, it was more a movement behind the black experience but um 
Hindu uh, community wasn't necessarily for the independence. So they were the first to start migrating to the Netherlands. But just giving you this short version. And then when the migration happens, you know, the people are kind of directed to Southeast. And then this happens. So 75 is independence. But it took a few years before that migration really started kicking in. So by the early 80s, you know, a lot of our people started coming here. My father himself came, I think, in 19, somewhere in the 70s. But my father came on a boat. And so 81, my sister and I are born. And we ended up in Southeast. But Southeast was really new back then. It was um, it was just fairly, fairly young as far as uh, it w- how it was built. But uh, it was very crowded. I remember um, what I really liked about it, as I think back now, it was community. Like you see the project buildings. And as much as it was drug ridden and there was a lot of crime at some point, all this bad stuff that was happening, but there was always community. Uh, people live together. And also, you know, if we're poor and uh, our neighbors are poor and everybody is poor, then we're not poor. Everybody is living with the same standards. So, but we were poor, you know. My parents were very hardworking people, so we I would say we were working class. But I remember growing up in Southeast, I didn't feel like, I think I felt like a free child, but I was growing up in a very mixed community. I, I, I can open up my books, school photo books, and I will see a class full of mixed children, you know? So I think, uh, for us, that was, you know, uh, I, I don't feel like I was living under oppression. And honestly, I think, I think I saw discrimination through my parents and how they were sometimes being treated by white people and I have one particular memory that just I cannot let it go I'm, I'm almost 40 and I just cannot let this one experience go where my father was discriminated against when we were standing in line at the post office for like an hour like it was really really busy very crowded and I decided to go with my dad and my mom and my sisters were in the car and so my dad and I are just standing there for hours for an hour and finally we got to, to the to the to the lady to help us and she refused to help my dad and my dad wanted to do something really simple but somehow she managed to tell him that well you need to go to another branch and my father was like it's not possible like I know I can do this it could be um, let me give you some it could be something small as he wanted a stamp for an envelope but it was something really small and the mere shock that my dad had like like what like I know I can do this so my dad you know he we walked away and then we got in the car and he told my mom my mom was like that's not possible so we go to another branch and the guy at the other branch tells my dad but that's stupid like you could have done that at the other branch you know and there's something about that experience and about the look on my dad's face that really I would almost say traumatized me you know as a child just seeing how my father was treated so um yeah everything you're saying I completely relate to um I think First, that idea of your parent who you see as all powerful Mm -hmm. and when they are like beaten in some way, you know, like some kind of that power that you like you could do anything. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment like they can't do it Mm -hmm. and you you can't really figure out why. Like you can't really connect it. And you're like, wait a second. It's like it is traumatizing. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's real in a way that is different than television. It's different than a, a history book. It's different than a story. It's like, no, I saw this. And I too, like I grew up in the Bronx and first generation Jamaican in the Bronx and very much my day-to-day life was not, I'd never felt 
discrimination in that way. Like I went to school, they were like predominantly black schools or like mixed schools, really predominantly black school, but like maybe Latin, like other people of color in those spaces. Um, my whole neighborhood people were from similar spaces and you felt very much like this is it. This is what it is. And then I hit high school and it was like, hmm, this is different. You know, like, and it's still still you know like predominantly black but you start to have a snip of it and then you hit college and it's like holy shit i've been like living like i don't understand how could this be my country like my space how can my experience be so like different Mm -hmm. and it's so and so then it becomes really hard now as a parent because (sighs) so you recognize in retrospect some of the places that were limiting for you. You know what I mean? Like you don't know, like you said, when you're growing up, everything is cool. Like you're free, you're around. And then you grow up and you're like, actually you didn't have the best like education or you didn't have the, like that, like you weren't that, like there's places you couldn't go or it's not okay for you to be worried about your physical safety when you go to playground or it's not okay that you go to your local grocery store and you can't find good, you know, like you start to look around like actually we did. There was like really positive, amazing parts of our our lives and our childhood, but also we start to want ask for more. Yeah, I mean, and there's a range of experiences, yeah, because you're mentioning certain things that I wouldn't necessarily translate to the Netherlands mm-hmm, because mm-hmm, I do mm-hmm. think our education was good. Mm-hmm. Our public schools at the time, I think I had a good education, mm-hmm. but um, I do remember when I was in college. That, so here, studying for my bachelor's, we were in a supermarket in Harlem because I studied in Harlem, and um, and we were in a supermarket. But somehow they had a rule for kids from high school mm-hmm. that they cannot go inside in groups. But I always looked very young, so I looked like I was um, part of that uh, uh, group uh, of students. But I think I must have been like already like in my in my early twenties. And um, I remember walking in, and uh, the lady of the grocery store saying, "You need to go outside." And I just looked at her, and I just continued walking. And she just kept, but very rude, like she was really rude. And she's like, "You just need to go outside right now." I said, "I." I, I don't know why you're sending me to go outside and I'm not going outside. And she's like, yeah, well, we have this rule. And I said, well, I'm not that. And I just walked mm-hmm. off, you know, and I was with a friend of mine, a white girl. She was so nice. She was, she got so upset mm-hmm. because the lady was so rude, you know? And then, uh, so we go to the register and the same girl actually now is at the register. So I checked her. I was like, listen, even if you thought that was me, you didn't have to be so rude, you know? And then she's like, yeah, but we got this. So she just starts getting into an argument with me argument with me and I'm like you know what whatever and so this friend of mine she gets all hyped up and mad like she want to get on a barricade and start protesting you know and then uh, so we walk away from the supermarket and she's like no we got to go back and talk to the manager and then something clicked and I said no you can do that I can't do that and she's like no no we got to go back I said I can't do that you can if you want but like I've I already knew that if I was going to do that, I was going to be the angry black woman or the, you know, the, you know how they see us, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I was like, no, um, Madalona, whatever her name was. I was like, Marika, I can't join you with that. I'm, I'm black. So we just, I just got to lay low, you know? And so, and that's when I'm in college. 
So I'm in my early 20s, yeah. you know. But even before that, I'd know that around 16, 17, I was already experiencing, you know, microaggression from my mentor, from my intern uh, coordinator, you know. Um, I've had my fair share of uh, experiences from, from when I was a teenager, I would say. And something you said to me, you've said to me, and I, it makes sense. So for me, I've, in the U.S., I've always identified as Jamaican first. Mm-hmm. I was born in the U.S. I was raised there. I mean, I go to Jamaica quite often now as an adult, but as a child, I must have gone once. But I always identified as being Jamaican. And there's a way when I had children who were also were born in the U.S. and being raised there, I had to kind of reckon with like, are they American? Are they Jamaican? Like, what does all that mean? They see themselves, you ask them, they're like, I'm Jamaican too. And like, how is it? They weren't born there either. Like, there's a way that that lineage and that identity, which is all also a colonized place, we feel connection to and ownership in and pride in that doesn't feel as comfortable with identifying with American. And when I ask you, like, like you started, you're saying like, I start with, I am a Caribbean, um, South American person living in the Netherlands. I live in Amsterdam. I live in <laughs> flag for Amsterdam. That's my flag. But, but for my children, it, I think it, I will have to let them choose. Yeah. They, Cause their experience is going to be different. You know, hopefully some of the institutionalized racism or discrimination by the time they're, teenagers is different. Mm -hmm. Wild Wild Tech is a brand new podcast all about the intersection of technology and pop culture. Each week on Wild Wild Tech, we will bring you the wildest, most bizarre, most interesting stories about technology and how it's shaping our culture. We found experts, journalists, and people who lived through these incredible events who will help us understand how technology is affecting our daily lives. Subscribe to Wild Wild Tech to hear about how the video game World of Warcraft is helping us understand the spread of COVID-19. Or how artificial intelligence is trying to break copyright law. Find Wild Wild Tech for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. But um, yeah, so I think I'm very grateful for uh, Beyonce's Brown Skin Girl video because it's my daughter's favorite video and I think that she is seeing something that's reflecting her mm-hmm. but she gets to for me she gets to uh decide 
when she's ready, what if she identifies as Dutch or and my my kids are half African American because mm-hmm. their father is from Philadelphia, with roots in North Carolina, you know, so the South. So maybe they want to identify as American and Dutch, you know. Um, it's all going to depend on their experience. So I was a child born in early 80s, raised in the 80s in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, spent some time in the Caribbean. So because of my experiences and because the Dutch government at some time, at some point decided that there was allochtone and autochtone. Oh, tell me what that means. That was either you're born here, born and raised here, and you are of white descent, you're autochtone. And if you're allochtone, your parents, you are not born here. First, I'm first generation mm-hmm. born. So you're the, basically the other of the other. That's how I'm translating it now, mm-hmm. but maybe that's not, not the right translation. But, um, so I was an allochtone here, but this is already a term that's not being used so for my kids they're not going to be growing up with the word alachtone so that was a term that was re- like used all the time in your childhood yeah. and in your yeah absolutely where would that be like where would they like where would no, that no 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 it's not where that's what you are and so in that group is not just black people mm-hmm. it's arabs it's mm-hmm. third people with turkish but Turkish background, Moroccan people who are migrating mm-hmm. here. So we're all in this group, right? And we're all alochtone. And so I think for me, because we were given that label, I didn't, it wasn't a choice for me to say I'm Dutch, mm-hmm. you know, and also growing up at some point and really discovering my heritage and my roots and really feeling a strong connection to it. I was fine with it. You know, of course, I consider now alochtone to be offensive as a word, but I'm I'm fine with with a be having been seen as not part of that because I'm happy with what I am part of. What you're saying is so much a part of how I saw coming to the Netherlands, and that there was a way of like because people when we were coming here, people were like you know racism exists in the Netherlands too, and I was like I know I'm not stupid like I know you know like I I, I understand that white supremacy is pervasive all over the globe and that there are levels to it for sure there are level in the u.s it's a it's it, it has a certain it's a different level of violence it's just a different level of like enacting of this but part of what i would say to people and i did think it at the time was like we're not coming to amsterdam looking for identity we are Jamaican, you know, like I feel very secure in that. Like, like you said, like, I'm not trying to be part of this. I'm not part of this. And there's certain, and I was told I'm not part of this. It's like an understanding of that I'm othered and this way of like, there's actually some kind of like security of identity that comes with that, which I think was part of my childhood as being raised in a a Caribbean community is like, we're not Americans. We are Jamaican and we are here and there's not, and then when, there's not a like a d- desire or a need for acceptance. But as you get older and you go to high school, or you go to college, or you get into the workforce, it's like, but I see we're not being part of or I, are seen as like getting all of the rights and privileges that come with that identity hinders me. Like it, it keeps me from things. When I'm a child, when I'm young, it actually feels really good because I don't feel othered. I feel like I don't feel othered in my community. I feel like that's them <laughs> and this is us. And that's just what it is. It's like, no shade. Like, you guys do different shit. We don't do that here. Like, we take our shoes off when we come in the house. You don't. Like, we just are different. And that's okay. And then and then you have kids, right? Like, like you're speaking to. Our kids are hitting hit school in the U.S. and where they were in spaces that were predominantly white. Um, I know, like, we've talked about now our both of our kids entering grade schools in Amsterdam. 
that are predominantly white. And I've heard many stories from friends of mine who are identify as black or Arab and that have school age children here in Amsterdam. And they're just like, there's no kind of space to talk about race and how it impacts their experience there. Backing a lot of different things. I think Break first it down of all, for us, Ira. Break it well, down. Well, I think first of all, <laughs> we are all living in the West, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in general, we're living in the West. We choose to live in the West yeah. because if we want to, we can go home. I can move to Curacao, Aruba, or Suriname tomorrow and I'd be fine. But we choose to be in the West. So, okay, so we choose to be here and we choose we choose to be part of this part of the world. And so we are in a space where there's, like you said, there's white supremacy because we're in the West on different levels, right? But I think that, at least for me, so where I choose to be in, okay, let me just call it the belly of the beast. I, yeah, you're so generous again. You look, <laughs> No, no, but I don't want to, I don't want to just, just label it as a bad place. Mm-hmm. What I feel like, let's go with, we are all in the belly of the beast, mm-hmm. right? But you can still choose to be in parts of that where you're not necessarily getting a, fair education based on race. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you can be in America where maybe you have some uh, privileges, you you won't have certain privileges because of your race. But in the Netherlands, these are fundamentals that everybody gets. Absolutely. Health insurance, free, free, uh, free health insurance for kids until 18, uh, free education. So but we're still all in the belly of the beast. So I think that um, you have to be smart in choosing what part are you going to move into. So now you're saying, okay, you know what? Maybe the Netherlands could be a better, freer place. Yes. And if you look at fundamentals like free healthcare, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like education, you know that you're not necessarily going to be held back because of your race. Mm-hmm. So maybe looking at what you fundamentally need, this might not be such a bad place. Mm-hmm. But there could be other things that here in the Netherlands that you feel that are violent or based off of racism mm-hmm. against people of color or whatever that you you feel like, okay, now I'm going to have to weigh it out. What is going to work with, for me, for my children? And how much of this white supremacy can I deal with here? And, you know, and I, so I think that we have to be just conscious and smart about when we make these type of decisions, because I've thought about moving my children back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, with my partner. We've talked about that. And my partner said, blame me, no, because then they're going to have to private school and I'm not going to pay for private mm-hmm. school. So, you know. I mean, so many things. <laughs> so many, th- so many things. Absolutely. Love to be. I would love to live in the U.S. I wouldn't have a problem living in the U.S. because I I know we would still have a good life mm-hmm. because of, just because of the people that we are, yeah. you know. But I think that um, you know I don't think it's the it's just not the same experience. It's a it's a different country with different values, and I do think when it comes to race relations, I think we're somewhat behind in 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 our relationship with people of color and, and, and giving spaces to people of color. But I also think that as people of color, we're somewhat behind into the spaces that we've taken, mm-hmm. you know, because of the history, the history, you know, because of our parents coming here with a sense of thank you for having us. We're grateful to be here. We're happy to, to get a space. We're happy to have this shitty apartment in Southeast in the eighties, but we're good. Thank you very much. You know, so because of our parents being like, having that mentality, they never thought about buying property. You know, I'm the first one in my family buying property. And I think that uh, we have a long way to go. So uh, 
you know, you weigh the good with the bad and you just find a balance for yourself, you know? And I think that's what you said is such a powerful thing. It's like we all have to, as I think especially as like oppressed people, as marginalized people, we have to be willing to decide and think about what are the things we can live with and what are the things we can live without, right? And I think it's going to be, and we're individuals, so it's, and we're like different and we, I think it's going to look and feel different for different people. And I think we have to at least, what I think our parents weren't able to do and for so many oppressed people in the world aren't able to do is even ask themselves that question. Yeah. Like there is a choice to be made. Right. What can I live with? Because it's not going to be perfect. There is no perfect, exactly. you know, rainbows and sunshines place. And so I think like that is the thing. And I and the other thing that you said, and I think having children, yeah. so definitely something that has sh- moved in me is wanting more. Like there is a desire and a passion and urgency about like, actually, this is better than I had, but it's not enough. I actually want to take up more space. I actually want more. And I think that's the part that we as black people have to like give ourselves like the, like the openness and just like the self-worth to ask for more, you know, like ask for more. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, so in general, I think that there's a lot of work to do, right? There's work to do uh, with just in society, people amongst each other. There's work to do for us to live towards a better, free, safe, and just society. That's the mission statement of my company. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> free, safe, and just society for all, right? There's a lot of work to do. And we have to figure out the balance and we, we have to figure we want more. And I think, I think we have to do all that work. But I think also in that work is also what are we going to do to just continue to free our people? Yeah, absolutely. You know, because, uh, we are, we can already think about asking for more, but there's a lot of people within our communities who are not even there yet, yeah. you know, so I've kind of made it my mission through my work to make sure those voices are heard. And also that I can show them that you can ask for more. Yeah. I just need to translate this into an example. We, I had a foundation in Aruba and Curacao. Mm-hmm. Um, we had this like call it, just call it a pop-up school. Every summer we would go and we, we would teach them uh, different art disciplines, very intensive program, right? And we would have about 20 artists from around the world come to Aruba and Curacao and all the teachers were black. And we did that on purpose because we just wanted those Caribbean youth to see themselves in these successful people, you know, and so that they could aspire to also be that. If you're growing up in the trenches somewhere on the islands or if you're growing up in a neighborhood where you're invisible or your government is not seeing parts of that this island, you know, we were coming there and showing them, look at us. We are we are you. We come from where you where you're from. And it was such a such a valuable experience to give. And I think part of our work in asking for more and uh, taking space, we also really need to do some work within our community. Absolutely. You know, so uh, we can um, prepare them for, for white supremacy or we can, we can teach them that regardless of supremacy or oppression or discrimination or all these things, you can still be, you know, and you can still take up your space. What's coming to my brain is like even more than like preparing for or like that you can still is like just you being will eliminate it. 
Like the more we be, we are who we are, the, the, the less space there is for white supremacy. So I've been asking all my guests this season on Raising Rebels because we are in the time of pandemic. I keep thinking about the gifts that Corona is trying to give us, t- things that it's trying to teach us. And I, this time, and I'm wondering if there are like any, any lessons, any, any gifts that this time of pandemic has given you. Um, well, it's a difficult one. See, I lost one of my best friends because of COVID mm-hmm. in May. And after we lost Thai UK rapper, um, two weeks, I think two weeks after Thai passed away, we had a remote, uh, conversation with a group of friends and we had a, um, a Zoom call. And we were talking to each other about just about Ty and his life and uh, the things that we were mad at about, mad at him about. And um, there's a collective in London, Jazz Refreshed, and they are responsible for the best live jazz night and festival in London. And also in the group is Breeze. Breeze is a UK rapper who was one of Ty's closest friends. And Breeze is getting ready to release a record. And... Adam and Justin, who have Jazz Refresh, they also have the Jazz Refresh label. So as we're talking, in the moment, Justin and Adam practically offered Breeze a record deal. But it was awesome. We're not doing enough, guys. We lost Ty because of COVID. And who in the group bought Ty's last record? I didn't buy Ty's record, and I still feel fucked up about it, you know? So it was, the lesson, I think, was paying attention to each other, being there, showing up for each other. And it just gave me chills when Adam was like, yo, Breeze, what are you doing with that record? Was well, it's about to be released. Give us a call. And it just gave me chills in that moment. But it was like, yeah, we, we need to start paying attention and showing up for each other more. We've been so self-involved. And the crazy thing is Corona makes us even more self-involved because you're in a lockdown, right? So you have to just focus on your health and being safe and all this stuff. But also, I think for me, it really forced me to start thinking about, okay, so what is going to be very, very important when I get to come out of these games? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to have to show up for some people. Because I haven't, you know, and I know Ty is cool with the fact that I did a buy his record because I did put money into the studio time for him to build, to, to, to create the record. But it's just been, it's just been, um, it's been reflective, you know, I'm grateful, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm salty about losing my friend, but, and that's just a, a funny way of saying it, but it's, it's not, it's not fun, but you know, um, yeah. Thank you so much for showing up for me today. And like you have, I've gotten like so much of the Thai love. It's just like who you are. You just move through the world just like giving, 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 giving. And I think receiving and giving and receiving and giving. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> this podcast was produced by Domino Sound. Why not just get together and live in one love and one identity, you know? Rebel in the morning, rebel in the evening too. Now don't you be like a devil when I play with sounds called a rebel, rebel, rebel. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. 
So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.